Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily Pucks podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Teddy Schleifer. Happy Friday. Today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about the bunker mentality in Joe Biden's White House and whether or not he will be the nominee for the Democratic Party in 2024. And later on, since it is Friday, Alex Bigler is here with Dylan Byers for a round of Feedback Friday. Alex and Dylan take listener questions, and hopefully Dylan gives us a weekend cocktail recipe. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. We are back here on The Powers That Be to discuss all things Washington with Tara Palmieri. Tara, can I, can I begin with, with a... A, a trivia question or a gambling question for you? Are you ready for this? I have not. I have not given you a heads up. Yeah, thank you. Uh, on predicted, which is of course Do you the, love uh, that. Do you, are you a predicted uh, nerd? Uh, well, I, I, I'm. I'm not. But this this floored me when when I when I learned this, which is why I looked it up. Here's the question: Who will win the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination? What do you think the the percent chance, according to the smart people at predicted? What do you think they have for Joe Biden being the Democratic nominee in 2024? 20%. They have it at 30%. Okay, so I'm being provocative right now. Ballpark, pretty right. But you wouldn't have asked me if it wasn't low, and you know that. Oh, sure. You knew where I was going with it. The idea that Biden is not going to be the Democratic nominee, I know it's like a seductive narrative, right? Um, And it's it's, it's better for people in the news business if he's not. 30% seems low. But I'm reading your reporting, and I know that there's lots of kind of angling going on in the Democratic 2024 presidential world. Obviously, Biden age would say that, you know, this number should be 100 percent. It should be one dollar for one dollar, not 30 cents on the dollar. I wonder, as you kind of canvass the Democratic establishment and the Democratic powers that be, what number they would put on it. What does your spidey sense tell you? Okay. Spidey sense, and let's be honest, it's not just what our Democratic, you know, powers that be in Washington think. The national polling shows that 70% of Democrats don't want Biden to run again. I think that Joe Biden will wait for as long as possible. Ultimately, a if, if the Democrats lose the Senate and the House, that'll be really bad. Okay, they're going to lose the House and there's going to be a lot of soul searching and blah, 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 blah. 
they lose the Senate too, ooh, that would be really, really difficult. And I could see that there would be a lot of pressure on Biden to announce that he's not going to run for re-election. It's going to be a dark time in the Democratic Party between November, January, February, like real dark, right? Right. Plus, you're going to have all these investigations into Hunter Biden. There's, you know, reports that the Justice Department is looking at indicting him. Um, It's just going to be a dark time. It's not going to be good for his family. You know, Jill Biden will be the one who ultimately decides, I think. And for all my sources say, he's really unlike a lot of candidates. He truly is a family guy. Question is, does he try to clear the field for Kamala Harris if he decides to step down? I would say it's 50-50 chance. I'm not going to say 30%, but I'd say 50 because I really do think that things change after a brutal midterm. It's not just a news cycle where it's like, Biden got a shellacking. You feel it and there are months of it and it's going to be personal because they're going to go after his kid. And if he loses the Senate, especially since the Republicans have fielded such lackluster candidates. Your logic makes sense to me, and it's also not the Biden line, right? The Biden line at this point in 2024, I think the language they've used is that he intends to run for re-election. And the he sub- has to. They can't say anything other than that. He becomes a lame duck president as soon as that happens. It's like Nancy Pelosi here in San Francisco saying she's running for re-election. But Biden sort of frames it as he's doing it unless there's a health issue. But like you're saying there's also a political overhang on this and that it's not purely... If he can run, he's going to run. I think it's a double whammy. It's a political overhang of collective Democrats just screaming from the rooftops, you cannot be our nominee, right? right? Lots of calls from poobahs and lots of people actually saying, I might primary Biden. Like, I think people will come out and say they will primary Biden after the election. A credible primary threat? You know, a a current elected official? I don't know. But even non-credible primary threats are a thing too. He's going to be weakened. And then I think you layer in the personal stuff on top of it. And that is what will be the deciding factor. If it was purely political, I think Joe Biden only knows how to run. That's all he's been doing his whole Mm -hmm. life. But I think if he sees, if he thinks that perhaps saying he's not going to run for re-election will get the Republicans to drop their terrifying investigation into Hunter... Here's another thing. What if Hunter's indicted? How can he run if his son is indicted? That would be certainly a new frontier in in, in presidential politics. On the Hunter point, you kind of described this sort of bunker mentality that that sort of has enveloped 1600 Pennsylvania. Tell me just like, what's the mood there Uh, when when you talk to people? I imagine it's not fun to be at 35% approval. I imagine, you know, it's not fun to be, you know, still dealing with like, COVID stuff that you thought would have been got done a year ago, inflationary concerns that, you know, Biden was not predicting in his inaugural address, the war in Ukraine, which I think has probably been a net positive for Biden. But like any objective measure, this is not the presidency that Joe Biden had in mind. Tell me what the mood is right now. Well, it's interesting because I think there's more squawking from the Democrats about Joe Biden than you heard about Obama during his first two years. Like there was a certain level of deference, I think, to Obama that Joe Biden is not enjoying. And I think that's what really bothers them. They are hypersensitive. You know, they're in the trenches. They're trying to do good work. They want more recognition for the fact that he beat Donald Trump. There's just a sense that he's not getting appreciation for what he's done, right? And that like, even when he is talking, no one's really covering it or picking it up, right? 
So they're terrified of like Larry Summers on TV all the time. So they're constantly offering their own economic advisors and experts. And they hate hearing David Axelrod. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, about that. A Democrat, a very vocal. The thing is with David Axelrod is he has a lot of credibility in Democratic circles, yeah. I think, because of the fact that he actually worked so closely with Biden and his team. And so when he goes on CNN and says things like, Joe Biden looks like he's not in command. Yeah, he's not just a random dude on Twitter who like is mad that Biden's not lefty no, enough No, this right, is someone exactly. who was like in the trenches with Jen Psaki, in the trenches with so many of the people that work with Biden. And I think they just find it to be very unhelpful and they're super sensitive to it because there's this whole like Biden world inferiority complex to Obama and his team. You know, Ron Klain is always tweeting he, they say Twitter isn't real life, but how can you really believe your boss when you're seeing your own boss on Twitter all the time? Just the fact that he's engaging in it means that it's important. So I, I kind of disqualify whatever they say about Twitter isn't real life. Okay, maybe it isn't real life, but you guys surely think so, right? Trump, uh, Trump, what am I saying? Biden doesn't have, like, Biden doesn't read Twitter. He doesn't yeah, know how to do more, it, really. It's more of a you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. <laughs> he's addicted to truth social. Tara, on the point about acts, can, can you just... Um... Is this is this weird that that like that that a White House is is so sensitive to to criticism? Like I, I'm wondering how much of that is like just standard, you know, friendly fire that pisses you off because you know you're the president, and you expect everyone to be in your team. I mean, I feel like part of it is it feels like a, a commentary on kind of the way the media works now. Where in the olden days, right, you'd be just a democratic operative and you just sort of coast into the sunset. I'm sure access tons of money, right, and like. He doesn't really need to be mm-hmm. relevant, as people in Washington say. But now he's on CNN all the time. So there's like a cable element. He has a, a podcast, which, and he has this whole events sort of business at the University of Chicago. Like he is, he, he has a platform in, in a way that, you know, I don't, you know, I know Carl Rove shows up on Fox and, and James Carville had it too. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I feel like people now, maybe it's the sort of the celebrification of, being a political operative that, yeah, Ted Sorensen was, you know, famous with, with JFK, but like that these people are now, like David Axelrod is like a household name. Oh, totally. And that's kind of weird. And I, I just wonder how much of this is, is a commentary on kind of the times we live in. I don't know if the times have changed. I just think there's more socials, more oversaturated. It seems like he's, he's always on CNN all the time. And right. the thing is that he can create a new cycle by what he says. Have you watched Simone Sanders show yet? No, I haven't. I haven't. I, I haven't either, but I just, I haven't really seen any news broken about things she said on the show. So I've got to think she's sort of tiptoeing around the administration. I mean, these people are always one foot in, one foot out. I mean, like Axelrod is out of the game, right? He's obviously older. Right. And is- but I wonder if Jen Psaki, like which, how she's going to manage it. She called into MSNBC the other day and was like, they're doing a good job on commons communications yeah, and they should continue to do this. And it's like, okay, cool. You can do that as a commentator. Boring. For a Right. Yeah. Okay. But like, <laughs> right. how long? Are, like, how long can you carry a show with that? All right. Thanks so much for for coming by. Um, and uh, for folks who want to uh, place bets, it is predicted.org. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> not All right, Tara. T- take it easy. Thanks. Bye.
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome back, everybody. No, this is not Teddy Schleifer. This is Alex Bigler. And I am here for another iteration of Feedback Friday. And I am joined by one of my favorite people. I know everyone thinks I say that about everybody. It's not true. Dylan Byers. So Dylan, before we get into it, I want to take our listeners on a a little journey about the first time I met you in person. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) so the first time that i met dylan byers in person was in los angeles california it was over almond milk lattes with the hollywood sign just sort of gleaming in the background and i remember showing up where we were supposed to meet and like trying to find you i'd never met you before all i knew was your avatar your puck avatar and i was looking around and i was like well all i see is this young Brendan Fraser circa the mummy. I don't see Dylan Byers anywhere. Turned out young Brendan Fraser circa the mummy was you. Uh, suddenly just got very self-conscious about my hair. Like I needed to not have it in a bowl cut, apparently. No, no ne- never change, never change. Brendan Fraser and the mummy is like my highest form of compliment. But I will take it. I will take it. I will take it. I will, I, I will take it with pride. So you write one of our most popular private emails in the room. You cover all things media, whether that's television or books or newspapers or anything that can possibly be media. It turns out everything is media. The whole world is just media. 
So I cover everything. If you were to like go back in time and cover what media <laughs> meant in the in the 1600s, what would that look like? Like people writing on tablets, yeah, scrolls in the cave. That's going to be your. So I wanted to get a sense of, you know, I, we know what, what you write about, but I want to get a sense of when, when you're writing, who do you feel your audience is? Like, who are you trying oh. to write to when you write? I, you know, it's, it's probably three rings. So I sort of see it as like three rings of a circle. And, and in the center, the bullseye, very unapologetically, I say this, I am writing for the player's in the game that I cover. I am writing for the people who are in the room because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do here, in addition to being sort of like interesting and insightful and buzzy and yes, a little gossipy is just like, get it right and get it right in a way that I believe that like sometimes only the people in the room understand. And so if I'm doing right by them, if those people read it and they're like, that's true, even if their PR people are saying that's not true, like that is what I want. And I want those people who are in the C-suite, in the boardroom to read it and say that resonates and you, you get it and you understand it. I think the second ring are people who are in the game, but perhaps at like one or two degrees of a remove, who are looking for greater understanding about how their industry works, what's actually going on. I mean, I think one of the highest forms of praise I can ever get is from someone who says, like, I find out what's going on in my company from you. If I get that, like, that is, a, that is we're going to put that day in the wing column. And I do think, like, you know, when you're talking about these organizations, there's so many people who wake up and go to work every day and do the thing they do for that organization who don't have clear visibility into how their leaders are thinking and, and why they're making the decisions they make, or, or why did that person get promoted? Why did that person get fired? What really happened there? So if I can speak to those people. And then I think third is the reason I love writing about media is because I actually do believe that media is everything. And I believe we see and understand the world through that filter, which is why it's called media. There's an incredibly sexy and compelling and dramatic story happening in the media industry, across the media industry. These players are fascinating. The egos are fascinating. They're fascinating at the executive level. They're fascinating at the talent level, at the agent level. And that's a great story. And maybe there are similarly fascinating stories happening in banking or in the trucking industry or in, you know, certainly in the world of sport. It could be anything. But like the media industry is made up of a very interesting set of people. They're characters. These are fascinating, really interesting people. Ideally, we are making that world accessible to an audience that is well beyond the industry that just sort of takes interest in the drama and in understanding what the people who dictate what they see and consume online and, and on television and, and in theaters are actually like thinking and doing. I have two anecdotes to, to those points. So for that second concentric circle, I remember when, when Zucker left CNN and you did a Twitter spaces about what was going on. And someone tweeted out that it looked like half of the CNN newsroom had joined that Twitter space because you are, you know, working to say what the story is without the spin. And so I, I think that's great. And then to that third point, you did a one-on-one -on -one call with one of our favorite Inner Circle members this week who is not, you know, a shark in the media industry. It's just a, 
a person who finds it interesting because the TV comes into her home on a day-to-day basis and wants to know who the people like shaping that industry, what they do and what they think. She is wonderful, by the way. Really (laughs) a favorite. Yeah. You know who you are. You know who who we're talking about. (laughs) We're big fans of yours. Big fans. So one fun thing that you and I share besides most things is an affinity for a well-made, well-balanced cocktail. Especially on a Friday. Do you have anything that you would like to send us into the weekend with? Any special Dylan, Alex Bigler, buddy comedy (laughs) cocktails? Yeah. Okay. So here's a cocktail gadget that I want. So I was at the premiere earlier this week in LA for the new Game of Thrones from HBO. Oh, yeah. Very, oh, I know. Is that, and by the way, like, I don't know if I'm, I think maybe I'm not allowed to talk about it, but I'll just talk, like, it's, it's really good. It's great. And if there's a question of like, can you franchise television shows in the way that you can franchise film like Marvel or Star Wars? The answer I think is going to be yes. I think this is going to be another big hit for HBO. Anyway, after party at the motion picture museum, there is a, uh, like a glass case that is hooked up to a basically what looks like a blowtorch that has like a little <laughs> pocket where you put in sort of like herbs, like, uh, oh. looks like tea and you basically light it on fire with another blowtorch. And then you pump that into the glass case. This is very like song of fire and ice was the theme so there was this, I, I'm going to say it was a bourbon. My guess is it was probably like a cinnamon simple syrup. And then it had like a dried apple on top, probably some bitters in there. But then they smoke the hell out of it. And then you get to pull it out of the smoker. And it was fantastic. I'm a big fan of, of smoky cocktails. I think if you don't have a smoker at your disposal and you're looking for a smoky cocktail, what I would go to is a Oaxacan Old Fashioned which is uh, two dashes of Angostura bitters, a teaspoon of agave syrup, one and a half reposado tequila, and then half an ounce of your favorite mezcal, and then with a little orange twist. And that is a killer cocktail. Both of those are perfect. Dylan Byers, Alex Bigler, buddy cocktail. Buddy cocktail. Uh, buddy comedy it's a new cocktails. Pod. It's a new pod. So, buddy cocktail. I, yes. This is the start of our new franchise. <laughs> so I'm glad that all of our listeners are, are getting the premiere episode. Thank you so much for talking with me. And if you ever need anyone to take your place at a Game of Thrones premiere, I'm willing to, you know, I pledge myself as tribute. <laughs> Happy to take it. Thank you for having me, Alex. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 